Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and this week we get the chance to speak with Nicola Patrick, all about her life journey and her work today with Thrive Wanganui. And in particular, we talk about an upcoming event called Thrive Expo 2022. I really enjoyed this discussion, and if you do as well, then make sure you check out the show notes where there are links to the things that we talk about. And don't forget that this is episode 301, so there's plenty of content in the back catalog, including the last episode where I was actually interviewed about my life journey. And if you enjoy this content, then would you be willing to share it with one other person? Now let's get straight into this interview with Nicola. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Nicola Patrick, who's the founder, program director, and the big cheese at Thrive Wanganui. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Stephen. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I was reflecting and we've actually known each other for several years now. It's not it's not like, oh, I just met you. And sometimes when I interview people, I've only, you know, literally just met them. Whereas with you, I feel like there's there's several years at least of history in terms of social enterprise and different um, things that we've exchanged on and, and collaborated and had ideas on. So for those reasons, I'm looking forward to um, diving deeper with you, um, and I'd love to find out more about this expo that you've got coming up later in the year. But before we talk about that and um, Thrive Wanganui, I'd love to go back in time with people. So in your case, what, were, what was life like for you when you were, say, five or six years old? Where were you living? Oh, that's um, it's a really interesting question, actually, about where I started. And of course, all as these things are, they're highly influential. So I'll rattle through it quickly, and then we can come back and talk about that sort of really formative part. But I was born to a mum who was a school teacher and a dad who was a bank manager, which makes it sound very sort of traditional. But actually, I realize now as I'm older that my parents were actually quite progressive and open. Um, for their age and for their uh, world that they were part of. So I was born in Porirua. We lived in Pukarua Bay. But before I was one year old, my dad was transferred to Fiji. So we lived in Fiji till I was about four years old. Then we came back to Palmerston North with the bank. And then we went to Takaka in Golden Bay. And I was there for those really formative years up until I was about 11 years old when we shifted to Whanganui, which is where I am now, back for the fourth time and where my parents ended up retiring to. And another whole saga of how many other places I've lived over the years. But there were lots of different places. But really, so five or six, I was actually in Palmerston North. But not so long afterwards, we ended up in Takaka and Golden Bay. So we spent all these amazing weekends exploring the bush and the beach and the mountains and lived um, on the old on top of the old Bank of New Zealand building and the main street of Takaka so lived wow. upstairs on the flat and right next to a library and a playground and backing onto the river so um, yeah I was very lucky had an amazing childhood 
And for people who haven't been there, it's kind of, even today, it's its own world, isn't it? Like that once you go over the hill and yeah. you come down, it's like you're entering into the land that time forgot or, or, you know, it's just got a really interesting vibe. Was it the same back then as well? Oh, yeah, it was hilarious. I still remember a funny anecdote of shifting to Whanganui when I'm, you know, like 11 years old and looking up in the sky and having a freak out and yelling at my mum to come outside and see because I was sure I could see a UFO but it was a plane crossing in the sky and it was just the <laughs> lights of that because Takaka um, still doesn't have traffic lights and it certainly is a very quiet little, little town and it was a very big deal to drive the Takaka Hill to go to Nelson. So we hardly ever did that. So even though I, on some measures, ha- have had a very conservative, sheltered, even traditional upbringing, I've actually had all these wonderful other experiences that have layered through my life um, and given me lots of, well, mainly in particular connection to the environment. Yeah, that's amazing. And it is, it is a really unique place to, to visit and, and I imagine to grow up as well, because there's that natural beauty, isn't there, uh, of the rivers and, um, you know, natural springs with this amazingly pure water bubbling up. So it's kind of right in your face. You can't deny the beauty of nature if you're living there. A hundred percent. And, um, Uh, not last summer, but the summer before my boyfriend and I took our children and we spent a couple of weeks in Takaka and Golden Bay and Abel Tasman. And it was just so awesome to be able to um, introduce them to those places I grew up. And of course, when you live in a really small town, you do things like you walk to school or bike to school by yourself from, you know, the day you start school, which is what I did too. So it just, it was a, it was a really awesome place. Um, and it's still at such a beautiful part of New Zealand too. It's still very isolated and remote, although, of course, really touristy by comparison. Back then it was just, you know, a back, a little weenie backwater, still filled with hippies, um, but much more a, a little tiny rural settlement. Yeah. So what sort of population was it? Do you do you remember? Ooh, was it I don't know. But it would pro- yeah, I think it would be hundreds. I don't think it would have been much more and we also had this amazing um, experience etched in our memory because there was a massive flood uh, while we were living there and it uh, because we lived upstairs we ended up with a number of families staying with us Um, and because that was a bank there was lots of sandbagging and lots of drama and excitement so we lived through a little natural disaster that was big enough that's in one of their uh, like there's displays in the local museum and my dad my dad wrote a little um, piece about the experience for the township so yeah it's really neat being part of that history too yeah that's amazing and the school that you went to the primary school is it still the same location like it's just sort of down the main street and then it's around the corner out of out of town yeah yeah it is we went there we took the kids there and um some of the buildings are still the same and um you know you could look through at the swimming block um and it's been expanded And the field still looks massive. Like I always remember we'd play down the end of the field and it looks as big as I remember. So I wonder if they have um, expanded, if it's gone into some neighboring paddocks, but it's still quite rural. So it hasn't got lots of buildings around it. And um, yeah, that was a pretty awesome place to grow up. Yeah, it sounds like it. There's an interesting intersection here because I've been helping out a group um, called the Takaka Co-Housing Neighborhood. Ah, yeah. I don't know if 
it's on your radar, but it's literally right near to that school. Um, and they've bought this amazingly pretty big block of land, and they're going to be having some co-housing villages, which basically are being built or are about to be starting to be built. So Simone and Bonnie and Reggie and the team there are really working at really looking at the future of um, community, but then also regenerating the land that will be around the village. So it's not just about housing, it's also about um, native trees and plants. And, um, and it's literally like very close to the school. So it's going to be part of their thing is the education, you know, that the children will be able to come and see a regeneration project firsthand. Uh, look, that's, it's really interesting to me because of two, two reasons. One is um, I lived uh, until about a year ago, I spent the last two and a half years living at the Quaker community here in Wanganui, which is a awesome. values-based community with 17 households with on five hectares. So I've got first-hand experience of what it's like living in a community. And the second is a lot of co-housing movements are connected to, um, of course, environmental thinking and eco-housing. And my boyfriend's actually uh, got a passive house um, business of sustainable engineering. So I'm I'm often having conversations around how we can design the way we live in our houses and use resources differently. But I also, uh, for better or worse, have some firsthand experience of how hard it is to live in a community where right. you're making decisions together and using consensus. It's actually, um, there are many, many benefits, but it is quite um, a heavy weight in how to do that. It's not that light and easy we had a massive manual like you know an inch thick of papers that we'd agree through quite complicated processes with a board and quarterly meetings and we'd meet for two hours every Monday night to make decisions together and sometimes it wasn't that much fun to be honest um, <laughs> but, but it was a beautiful spot and I do think we have to get our heads around it but I do also having done it myself um, think people need to be really um, pragmatic on how it's going to work in practice and beware of the challenges that exist in making decisions together and how you share the load of caring for the land um, particularly like me when you're um, you've got a busy paid working career if you're in an environment where you're all at the same place and you've got a lot of time to give to the land it's um probably easier and and maybe that's the nature of this particular community given the location um, mm. but where I was there's a lot of tension just around your availability to help with working bees and things like that. Wow interesting well it sounds like there's a lot of um, wisdom gained from practical experience there so that's that's good I'll have to um, connect you with them because that I think we can always be learning right this yeah, one totally. um, what they're doing is having a real focus on um, tiny homes so they're going to be very small dwellings, um, but then there is a big feature about the community and shared, you know, shared gardens and, and different um, facilities. So, yeah, it's just because you're mentioning Takaka, it's literally on my mind because um, we've gotten through as a charity. So there's a charitable status now for the work that they're doing. So back to your childhood, then um, thinking through that sort of primary school years, I can imagine like I'm just got to running theory here but the sort of environment where you were growing up that itself 
you know, as a small little town where community is important and people matter, do you think that that has had a shaping influence on kind of over the years who you've become, or do you not ascribe too much to that early childhood experience of Takaka? Oh, no, I, I, I ascribe an awful lot to my years in Takaka, but mainly like that's really overt in the relationship with nature and how I think about um, people's interaction with the world. And, you know, uh, some of those sort of throwaway comments like how we treat people is how we treat the environment and vice versa and how your identity um, comes together and, and, and sort of your values set. So being from Whanganui and the Whanganui um, saying of um, ko o te, te awa, ko te awa, ko o, I am the river and the river is me, is something that I uh, ironically grew up with before I was in Whanganui. So um, that connection to nature is really strong. The treatment of people and that equity thing, thinking, I think comes from my parents, um, regardless of where we were. And while my parents are um, would never identify as activists, um, they do have very strong values. Like my dad has always been very much a servant of community through lions or other voluntary work. And my mum is, uh, you know, was a lifelong school teacher and her family also had um, historically active in the union movement. So that sort of equity and fairness stuff was really ingrained, but it wasn't in our faces. But I think it permeated the way we looked at how important fairness is in society. And I think when that's grounded in an environmental context, it makes a lot of sense because it's not about um, money and it's not about possessions. It's about how you treat people and what's fair in the world. And in my mind, very much through an environmental lens. So, yeah, I do think it really reinforced that. And my parents both being, you know, active parts of the community in their own way, whether teaching or whether being in the bank and lions and volunteering, it was all right there. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is always, it, it, it's amazing to me, isn't it? How, how much our parents influence us <laughs> for good or worse. I think we're, some of us are fortunate in terms of who, what the models that we had, I guess. And I feel the same way about my parents and what I do today is definitely, definitely a reflection on who they, you know, what they valued and things. What, oh, yeah, I think, sorry, jumping in, I think that stability of upbringing and that, you know, incredibly positive treatment is massive. And I, you know, my heart breaks for people who didn't get that advantage in life. Like, I remember writing one of my columns quite a few years ago now, um, and it was saying, I've never been smacked in my life. And my mum's never been smacked in her life. And my children are not getting smacked either and how unusual that is to say we've got three generations of smacking and my mum's 78 you know like it was really unusual for her to be brought up without being smacked but that's the line we come through and while I lived in a Quaker community we're not particularly religious and we're not Quakers in any way I was just living there because that's where my boyfriend was living um but it's uh it's it is unusual to find New Zealanders who are third generation not smacked Hmm. yeah yeah it's it, it's well we could go off on a tangent here because there's so much that could be said I agree with you though I mean when you think about the origins and and what it is that shapes us there's so much influence there 
Um, yeah. So just thinking through then your own childhood, it sounds like the outdoors was a big part of it. And, and even in back in primary school, um, did that influence the sort of subjects that you were interested in as we're kind of moving into high school or what, what was it that you, yeah, that, that you really enjoyed studying? Yeah, absolutely. It, um, I was a pretty able student and, and pretty good at a whole range of subjects. Um, but my passion for the environment meant I really wanted to go down the biology, um, natural sciences route and always planned to study um, science at university. And I wasn't certain what it was I wanted to be, except that I wanted to work in and for nature um, so um, we could have a whole side conversation about my year off. Uh, when I left school, I took a year off and went to Europe and stayed with my uncle in Hamburg, who was in the arts scene. But that's a whole other story. So after that year off, I came back and went to Massey and did a science degree. Um, and halfway through the science degree, I discovered that I actually didn't like the discipline of science. I didn't like um, methodical approaches. I much more enjoyed exploring ideas. And um, so I almost had a, a sort of a, what am I doing? What What's happened here? But I remember a bizarre conversation at a friend's 21st with her father who said, have you ever thought of journalism? And I'm like, no, but yes, that's perfect. So I finished my science degree and got into postgrad diploma in journalism at Canterbury and set on my pathway of wanting to do science for the environment communications work and um, got a job as a news reporter and um, jumped in and then went around a whole bunch of other corners. But a lot of it comes back to those still being very strong values around nature and science, but more through a communications and influence lens about how does everything fit together. That's really interesting. Well, I definitely want to pick this up as a theme to explore it a bit more. But before we do that, <laughs> we do have a little bit of time. So the trip to Europe, do you think that affected how you responded to the study at university? Like if you'd gone straight from high school into university, do you think that you would have, I guess, more naturally just assumed this is the way things are done? Or did that year out shape you in a way that meant that you were maybe questioning more when you came back? I, I just, in my own mm. life, I look for parallels. So I start, I went to Canterbury actually and did a a law degree. And I, three years in, I thought I need a break. I need to do something different. So I moved to Japan for a year. And that one year in Japan, I learned more than my five years of doing law, you know, the story. Um, and when I came back, it really shifted the gear of how I looked at the world and what I was going to do with my life. Um, and I just wonder what, yeah, what shapes that had in your life at a young age to go overseas? I, I think um, I think it was it was interesting actually it's at least so for me because one I was really set on going to university and really set on studying something environmental. I don't know that it made it easier for me to determine that I needed to do journalism and enter that work in a different angle. Um, but it was hugely valuable for other reasons because. Um, my uncle, who invited me over, was that in my seventh form year, my final year at school, he out of the blue rang 
us and said, said, hey, Nicola, what are you doing next year? And I said, I'm going to university. And he said, if I gave you $1,000, would you come over to Germany and stay with me and travel in Europe? And I said, <laughs> yes, you know, <laughs> that wasn't a hard sell. Um, and my uncle was, um, who's, he, he passed away um, actually of AIDS. Um, he was an openly gay man who was in the theatre and he was the dance captain of Cats. And Cats was, a, you know, a multi-year, very long-running um, uh, uh, show that was on the Reeperbahn, which is sort of the red light district in Hamburg. And he lived in an amazing apartment near the train station. And I would stay at his apartment, go and see him at the theatre, made friends with all the performers, and then go off for, you know, as little as three days or as long as a couple of weeks and travel different parts around Europe over five months. So I had this incredible independent um, experience making new friends and seeing the most amazing places in Europe and I had some friends on exchanges in Norway and Hungary so I got to go to some more um, slightly out of the way places um, so I really had my eyes opened to the reality of Europe um, some different parts of Europe. It was only a couple of years after the Berlin Wall had come down and I went to East Berlin that was still a, a bit more rough and ready back in those days. Um, but also I had this amazing experience being part of theatre in Germany where the majority, well, all, almost all the men on the show were gay um, and being part of a completely different culture and experience and had this wonderful time with my uncle who um, sadly passed away a few years after that. So, um, no, it didn't so much influence my choice, but, oh, my goodness, it was, you know, something I'll never get back again. It was totally incredible. Yeah, that's an amazing experience. And, and your uncle, what had shaped him to reach out to his niece and say, come over to Europe? Why? Yeah, what was his thinking? Any, any well, thoughts? There? I, I, look, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he, his life was cut short by that awful um, disease. And he, my, so how it's interesting. So my mum's family, um, there's two pairs of siblings with about, I think, 14 years between them. So there's okay. my mum and her older brother who were born in the war years um, of World War II. And um, then my grandparents thought they couldn't have children and they ended up adopting Mark, my uncle. Um, but then they got pregnant with his little brother, our, you know, my uncle Ian. So there were two sets of siblings. So Mark uh, was, I don't know, 14 odd years younger than my mother. And um, while he had um, married and had a daughter, he um, hadn't stayed actively involved. And of course she was much younger. She's much younger than me. Um, although not so much now that I'm in my whatever year we want to admit to, 50th year. <laughs> um, but um, so I was the first of his relatives that he could offer something to perhaps that right. he could, because he'd been away for a long time um, living. He'd, he'd left um, New Zealand for a long time, um, lived in Australia and then um been uh you know been for some time in this show in Germany and he was very very connected to the family even though there were a number of years where he perhaps wasn't the world's best dad 
to his own daughter. He was very close to um, my side of the family, my mum, his other um, brothers and his mother, my late grandmother. So, um, yeah, I think it was a way for him to give, you know, part of his life back to us. Mm. Um, And and maybe if we had, um, he hadn't passed away, it would have been something he would have done to the others, you know, my little sister and my other cousins and in time his own daughter Mm. it's really interesting to me though these models of people who do this and and kind of they they have a understanding that there is generations Uh, I don't want to put too much onto your uncle or you know but that that to reach out and say look you're my niece or my nephew like there's a there's a direct family connection but it's not like they're your daughter you know it's there's a it's a little bit of a, a a jump but hey, I'm going to pay some money. You're going to come and live with me. I'm going to show you a bit of the world. And I think too often, you know, particularly in our Western conception, it is very individualistic. And it's like, well, family means me and my child, rather than a bit, maybe a bit better understanding, which is a broader, you know, looking after our nieces and nephews and, and being interested in their journeys. Um, yeah. I would... My wife's um, uncle, he took his grandson to Europe, just the two of them. And so they had like a month together. So he's, he, he, at the time he would have been probably 70 or so. And then his grandson was young, you know, like 19, 20 type of thing. And, and just that transformation for the grandson to be taken on a trip with their grandfather to see all the sites of Europe you know, something he could never afford to do himself. But then I imagine as they're on a train to Paris, he's also able to learn from his grandfather and his entire life. I just think we're missing something there in terms of generational wisdom. And it becomes too much about like, oh, yeah, we see you for three hours at Christmas once a year. And we could be a bit more intentional. And I just love that picture of what your uncle was able to do for you. That's it all. was it was really amazing. And I'll always be grateful for that. And it just is really sad that he um, died in 1995. And this trip I had to Europe was 1991. So wow. it was, um, you know, we, we didn't know he was um, had that limited time. Mm. Um, obviously. Um, and we always hoped that he'd get home to New Zealand and pass away with us looking after him once we did know, but it just didn't work out like that. It went really quickly at the end. Right. Wow. Well, thank you for letting me um, go into your European experience. I always, I love those bits of a person's life, which are because that's where we can learn from each other. You know, that that's, yeah. those are the bits. And, and even somebody who's a young person listening right now might hear your example of an OE and the transformative effect that it had on them and then be in a hard place of saying, should I get my job? Should I go study? Should I go overseas? Like, you know, so it may help. That's all. So yeah. let's talk through then the first sort of years of your career because that sounds really interesting what what area were you covering and and who were you working for what type of stories were you doing so when I um, finished journalism school I was really lucky to be invited back to 
a paper because in those days it was hard to get a journalism job. I mean, it's probably much harder now. Um, so I was stoked to be invited back to a newspaper that I already done a placement at. And it was the um, evening standard as it was known in Palmerston North. And um, that was close to home and a town I'd lived in before and I'd made friends working there and it was hugely great fun. And my great goal was to be an environment reporter. And that newspaper had an environment reporter, which was really unusual back in those days. Um, and so I was quite in awe of him. Um, and I remember um, it going down badly. Like I remember saying these things to him and him um, not appreciating it. I think I said it in a way that made it too... Um, like, I want your job, rather than, wow, it's amazing that I could have your job one day. Um, <laughs> so so that was a pity that I didn't quite nail that uh, passion. So I actually only stayed as a newspaper reporter for probably, um, from memory, 18 months. Um, and then a job came up at the Department of Conservation doing communications work on the Kai Manawa Horses Program in Wanganui. So I actually jumped ship and left journalism. Um, and, you know, we we're talking earlier about ethics and values and equity and stuff. And my passion for journalism remains because I think it's such an important part of a healthy democracy and society. So I still admire the practice of journalism, notwithstanding there are some pockets of which are terrible. But overall, I think of it as a really critical profession. Um, so to leave so soon was not something that I had planned, but I realised I wanted to do conservation communications work and doing it in government also meant it was in a values-based environment as well, um, or at least that's what you assume, and it was my experience. Um, so then I, I had what I call my baptism um, by fire of being thrown in the super deep end of Kaimanawa horses. So that was at the time... Um, where the proposal, I arrived just at the end of the proposal to uh, not shoot horses from helicopters to reduce the herd size and to move into a new program. And so I was working really closely with um, the minister, Nick Smith, and I ended up being the national spokesperson on the Kaimanawa horses and doing lots of live um, media interviews and helped coordinate the adopter Kaimanawa horse program, which, you know, I had mixed views about, but um, yeah, it was a massive baptism by fire. So then I didn't end up staying there that long because um, I learned so much and was so excited by it. There was a national media role at the Department of Conservation that came up within a year. So I jumped ship and ended up in Wellington. So um, I really enjoyed the adrenaline and pace of being in the hot seat and so got um, quite involved at DOC in issues management and media liaison um, for about three years, then became the manager of that unit. So I was 27 years old and a really young, quite senior manager in the Department of Conservation working at a national level and connected to people all across the country and getting to travel places. And I had a wonderful time. It was amazing. <laughs> I like that. It's a, it sounds like it um, really was, you know, thinking about your background and the focus on environment and your love of nature 
and also storytelling. Like it sounds like it was a unique role that kind of wove both of those together. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. And um, I worked with some really incredible people. And I certainly realize now with a lot of the change that Doc's been through, that there were periods of what I would call Doc's heyday that I was actually there for. So I was there for the massive boost in funding around the biodiversity strategy. Um, and I was there when it was in um, quite a stable period of its structure. I was there when it introduced um, Te Pukinga Atafai, which was its program of taking every staff member onto a marae for a week to learn and better understand the treaty. Um, it, was, it was a really good time. And I actually then... Um, I loved it so much. I managed to get an operational manager's role, which I thought were like the pinnacle, really. And I spent two years as the Ruapehu area manager living in Ohakune and commuting round the side of the mountain to Whakapapa Village. And that was incredible because I was out there every day wearing a uniform and supporting staff in the field. And we had, you know, so many highlights and also challenges, including being there when the Laha went down the mountain when they um I don't know if you remember that I think it was 97 the um crater lake had overfilled due to an eruption and it only had a tephra or an ash sort of permeable dam that was going to collapse so they put okay. in this massive um monitoring system and a lot of risk management around it and I was there when it happened um so all sorts of things amazing kiwi program um using 1080 to protect Kiwi chicks. Um, we set up a really amazing partnership with the local iwi and the Bank of New Zealand and Untouched World Foundation to support youth in a leadership program through being in nature. Um, yeah, look, it was it was amazing. It was an incredible time. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I'm interested as well in, in terms of what you do today. And, and yeah, just chart us through what happened next and then how you got to where you are today? I'll rattle because there's, as uh, is it sounding as I'm repeating it back, there's quite a few um, corners I tend to take, it appears. Um, but I, I met a man who um, I ended up marrying and having two children with and divorcing. Um, but I met him just as he was shifting to Western Australia. So I threw it in. And uh, basically followed him over there, although I managed to score an amazing job um, before I left, and that was being the environment manager on Rottnest Island. So if anyone's been to Perth and been to Rottnest Island, um, it's absolutely stunning. It's as beautiful as the pictures. And so I worked there um, for a while, managing a team and connecting to the tensions and tourism and environment and also an Indigenous culture, um, Aboriginal Australia and that place was a really critical place. Um, and then I um, got pregnant and didn't want to commute by ferry to work and leave a baby on the mainland. So I had to look for another um, job. And I ended up at AECOM, a global engineering consultancy, uh, for seven years. And a lot of my work was on um, road construction project management, which is you know a big change, but I really valued looking at the world through that different sort of lens um, and I also helped the organization set up its corporate social responsibility program which is right. where the story starts to take the turn towards the parts that you know better um, mm. 
So we had a sponsorship at AECOM of Pollinate Energy, which was an amazing Australian startup based in India in the slums, helping families use um, environmentally friendly and health friendly lighting through solar lighting to replace their kerosene um, lamps. And it grew from there and pollinates still going down. It's an incredible social enterprise. So that opened my eyes to the intersection of environment and equity and um, social enterprise as a vehicle for achieving really positive change. Um, so yeah, I stuck at AECOM for some time. We shifted back to New Zealand, uh, lived in Whanganui, then lived in Taranaki, and then shifted back to Whanganui. And in that time, I um, realized that I actually wasn't happy working for a corporate. Um, and I had a lot of energy to give, but I actually wanted to use it for organizations that were fundamentally making a positive difference in the world. That's not to say we don't need good quality engineering firms and AECOM treated me so well. They were an amazing employer. I just realized for me, I wanted to throw my lot into something um, more values-based. And yeah. that's when I discovered Arkina Foundation. So I just knocked down their door and they gave me a job as their communications manager. So, um, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, but, but I actually didn't end up staying there that long because I also decided to pursue politics and uh, wanted to stand, well, did stand successfully for regional council, Horizons Regional Council, and Arkina, partly because they used to have James Shaw work for them, who's the co-leader of the Greens. They had a very conservative politics. If you're standing for politics, you have to stand down from your job um, sort of uh, policy, which is totally right. fine. You know, they really wanted to be apolitical. So I had to stand down from that when I took on my councillor role and I got this amazing job um, working as an environment advisor for an iwi in South Taranaki and Wanganui called Naroru Kitahi. So I spent three years working there part-time and I've done, um, and then I was working as a counsellor and taking forward what I'd learned from Arkina, that's where Thrive Wanganui came from. So that was about five years ago now that I was going, oh, I want to take what Arkina does, but apply it to my home and my region and see if I can find other like-minded people and activate energy around social enterprise for good, whether that's environment, whether that's equity, um, whatever it is. Um, and yeah, that was five years ago. And in that time, I've um, founded uh, uh, Thrive as a charitable trust. We've grown from me volunteering to having eight contractors, including me, and four and a half full-time equivalents. We've got an amazing contract with Ministry of Social Development, helping people into self-employment. We've um, raised the profile of what social enterprise is and its potential for our community. And we've done it through um, a really strong kaupapa Māori lens by designing it that way and having really good people at our board and on our team who are Māori and embrace how we can do it that way and honour where people are from and their values. 
That's great. There's so many, so many ways I could take the next question, <laughs> but I do have just, I'm real, always really curious when people come across social enterprise for the first time. And I'm just wondering, you know, going back to your Australian days, it sounds like that would have been your first kind of dawning realization of like, I'm within this corporate group, but here's some other ways of doing business. Do you recall sort of it, cause it, it, for me, it's been like a journey, you know, like I haven't always been who I am today. None of us have been. Um, but do you recall, like at some point, was there a moment when you thought, oh, what they're describing is different? Like, were they using the term social enterprise or was it more the concepts that you were starting to realize? Look, I think um, for me personally, I've always been near social enterprise. Like I always imagined that I would do volunteer service abroad or work in a developing country. So for me, the idea of working in a different way was already always there. That said, I've never actually done that. But, um, and I think it comes back to being in Fiji as a a small child, even though I don't remember much of it, I know that we were part of that life. Um, So I think that the, um, I also studied at university anthropology. And so I looked at indigenous cultures and values from a relatively young age as well. So for me, the, the eye-opening part of social enterprise is the layers that have grown around social equity and you know addressing injustice and power dynamics. That part's grown more than right. just the idea of business can be different. I'd always, I think had enough touch points into different types of businesses or different approaches of how to live, like more Indigenous values-based ways to live had always been right there. Um, but I think I think it's great that I worked for a corporate for so long because I gave it a really good go and I did do some positive stuff inside there, but I did realise that for me that wasn't a place for me that... I want to give my energy for making deeper positive change and not propping up the things that fundamentally are still trapped in, um, you know, return to shareholders in a, a capitalism sort of model and the use of resources, not through an indigenous sort of worldview. So um, I did get really excited about it. Um, but it grew more the more exposure I've had to it with um, with seeing how it can uh, even up the playing field for people and more deeply change the power dynamics um, that lead to a more equitable society. Yeah, that makes sense. I think similar, like for me, I worked in an international law firm, so you know, there was 4,000 lawyers and 55 offices. You can imagine mergers and acquisitions and buying gold mines and all this type of stuff. But I think having that background has now helped me to do what I do today. Because like you, I have, you know, different focus on purpose and profit and all of those things as well. But I can speak to it from having been in the other side of the spectrum Yeah, Yeah. and it's not all bad either. Like, it's not all bad. And my time on, um, I was on a major alliance project and it was at the time of the resources boom in Western Australia. And 
that because there was enough money going around, government and industry was coming together and doing riskier ways of getting stuff done that had sustainability KPIs and had Indigenous employment um, KPIs that actually did shift the dial and make a real difference. Um, but, but for me personally, that isn't enough. Um, although I'm very pleased to have had and seen that work and I can see the potential in it, although apparently it's only, it's a lot easier for governments and industry to agree to those terms when they're in a boom, not so much when they're feeling under pressure. Mm. Yeah, well, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about Thrive. I got you, you've given us the thumbnail there, but just, uh, you know, you've got some ambitious plans, I think, in terms of an expo coming up and, I think you're involved in terms of regions across the country, um, you know, connecting people and really encouraging that, that grassroots sort of movement to come from, um, from the people rather than a top-down sort of approach. But can you give us a bit more about, um, yeah, what you're doing and how you're doing it and what your plans are for the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um and where to start? Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, when you talked about grassroots and community-led. That's been a real um, principle and flavour, not just in Thrive, but in this wider network of people like us around the country. So um, thanks to Arkina, we came together in a regional hubs pilot some years ago. So there's a bunch of us all on the same journey at varying degrees. And we came together with the support of Arkina to examine what we needed to succeed. And um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all because you're not just trying to start something up with a different set of values. You're also trying to change the conversation about how we talk about, for example, regional economic development. And that is one of the themes of our Thrive Expo that we're going to be doing later in the year. Um, so what it, you're, you're in this, how do you build credibility? How do you access funding? How do you not fall through the cracks because you're not urgent enough for a, a philanthropic foundation to fund um, and you're not a business so you don't qualify for government business sort of support? So there's a lot of cracks um, in the system and it's simply about how do we collectively demonstrate that there isn't just um, three sectors, if you like, government, charity, and business. There is, in fact, a fourth sector, which is somewhere, if you want to think of it as a spectrum between charity and business, but actually it's its own self as well. Um, and we have set up at Thrive as a charity, uh, so we know what it's like to fall through those cracks, um, but we also operate as a social enterprise, um, whether that's contracts or um, delivery of services for funds. So um, we've got that experience from both uh, ends of the spectrum. And the real game changer for us has been this relationship we've formed with Ministry of Social Development, although it's actually been a bit risky for us because it's taken us a little bit away from a focus on, um, and I've got using it in inverted commas, pure social enterprise and down a pathway more of addressing inequity. So we've got that we've had this contract to help people into self-employment who are on the job seeker benefit. Now, a lot of them 
are focused on social enterprise. That's where their values set is. Um, they're not just trying to set up traditional businesses. They're trying to do things with a different angle. Um, and so we're really comfortable in providing that support. But what we've also realized it does is we're helping people break down the barriers that they've faced in their life through disadvantage, through a lack of confidence, a lack of resources, so that they can be self-employed and self-determining and choose where and how they live their um, money-making side of their lives. Um, and what that does is that increases greater diversity in who are leading businesses, what businesses are and what their purpose are, and how that leads to a more um, fair and equitable and diverse society where power is better shared. Now, we're only at the beginning of that, and we're only playing a small role. It really comes down to those people, their ideas, and how much um, they can put behind it, plus a bit of luck, as in any business. Um, but it's hugely satisfying. So alongside that, we're also doing some coaching of more so-called pure social enterprises as well. But without that bread and butter contract from Ministry of Social Development, I don't know how long I could have um, chipped away at keeping Thrive moving without that, um, that support. That's great. Well, there's a lot of need out there, as we both know. So I think education and resourcing people is one of the biggest factors where you know often people have the heart they want to do something they have a concept but they just need some practical guidance on what are the steps to take so absolutely like and we there. we know that even the most well-resourced and confident people struggle with starting up an enterprise like it's not an easy thing to choose to do and if you want yeah. it to be a social enterprise then you're also addressing you know, your purpose and your values and how you practice what you preach and are you doing the right things to make a difference on top of all the business startup needs as well. But if you're doing that in an environment where you don't have any real money behind you, um, you don't have people around you who are experienced in business and you've got other challenges in your life and your networks, I mean, clearly that's a really big ask for someone. So we love that we're funded to be alongside people on their journey. And um, I just was working on my stats this morning. And the last um, year, we've helped 15 people set up um, in self-employment. And so mm. it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I help a lot of startups as well. And it is amazing. Like it's not an easy path, but it is very rewarding as well if people can get their purpose right and feel like they're really fulfilling, you know, a unique place in the world. So just, I'm curious, I know we don't have all the information about the expo that's coming up, but just give us a teaser as to what you have in mind for that. Like, is this going to be a national thing? I know the answer to this, but just for no, the no, it's absolutely fine. Um, yeah. How are you hoping it's going to run and how are you going to activate regions maybe to be involved? Yeah, well, we're, um, we're uh, planning it to showcase Whanganui, but it will be online. So it's, it's a combination of leadership from the regions about where we're heading as a country and more at a global level too, with the development of regional economies, how we, sort, um, how we support kaupapa-led enterprise, um, how we go from local social enterprise to global um, connections. So there's a whole range of themes. 
we are shoulder tapping some amazing people from around the country to be part of a series of podcasts. And then we're going to follow up with online Q&A discussion. So we had wanted desperately to be able to host the expo in person over two days, like we did in 2018, which was an amazing event. Um, But we had to draw the line and say, we think COVID's going to get in the way. But we can't just convert a conference into an online event. We need to redesign it. So we've got a wonderful team member called Elise who's got huge experience in event organization space. And she's come up with a really neat model where we're going to have the series of podcasts with incredible people sharing insights that you uh, sign up and listen to. And then the following week, we're going to have Q&A discussions with them at structured times where you can drop in. Um, So instead of dedicating two solid days to traveling to an event and being there in person, which we really want to do again one day, but it won't be this year, um, that you sign up, you get an experience online, and then you're involved in the discussion following. So you get to reflect and think, ask questions, connect with people. And um, yeah, and I'm quite excited to say there's... um, yourself is one of our people we're going to be connecting with yeah well that's how we ended up arranging this call because um we were talking about different ways that i could be involved so yeah it's going to be fun to maybe potentially record something from a canterbury perspective to throw in the mix we'll see exactly how it plays out but it's good just so people listening have it on their radar what's the time frame for this it's going to be a couple months from now Yeah, it is. It's um, later in June and we're um, setting up our uh, website event hosting um, infrastructure at the moment. So the best way for people who want to keep in the loop is to follow our Thrive Wanganui uh, with an H, of course, uh, Facebook page because everything will be released through there and you can contact us and go on our once a month e-newsletter if you want to make sure you don't miss out as well. But everyone's welcome. We, we're we also intending con- to connect to a few people internationally as well through the Social Enterprise World Forum. We've made lots of good connections and there's lots of us in the same boat. Um, and what hosting it from Whanganui and bringing the Whanganui fa- flavour means it's absolutely grounded and practical and regional and kaupapa Māori and it's going to be um, still really insightful and visionary, but grounded and practical as well. So I really encourage people to join us online. It's going to have a a low entry fee um, and you'll be able to be part of it around the rest of your life. We really hope people haven't got too much online fatigue, um, but I think the way we're designing it will will make it more engaging for people too. It'll be in bite-sized chunks. That's great. And a shout out to Elise, I think, who's doing a lot of that work. And um, we've just had some emails and things, but she's clearly very efficient and got some great ideas. So we'll see how it comes together. You probably remember I was going to be hosting an impact conference in October this year, but I've decided to postpone it to 2023 just Uh because of the same sort of logic that it's just it's just too uncertain at the moment to be able to say, yes, let's just go ahead and gather. So. I think at some point we'll get all these things up and running in person and we'll be able to meet together, but um, maybe this year will be challenging. But like you say, that's the beauty of Zoom. You know, we can 
use it to connect. Yeah, absolutely. We just decided we we thought hard about whether we'd go hybrid because we really wanted to be in person and especially for our local people or people who would travel to Whanganui. Um, but we decided it's too hard. You can't serve both audiences and would rather do a really good quality job um, and reach more widely across the country um, and connect and showcase Whanganui in a different way. So we will host in person again, too. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll coordinate so we don't end up having them on the same day. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, can I just ask a question? This is kind of a, a off-topic one, but since you live in Wanganui, um, what's been your sort of following in terms of the river and legal status and personhood and things? Is that something that people on the street there talk about? Or is it more of a conceptual thing that the rest of us outside of Wanganui are, are very interested to see? what happens next or yeah any thoughts on that yeah well i'm i'm really fortunate as a horizons regional councillor i'm actually on the strategy group te kōpuka which was set up under the settlement legislation so for me as an individual i'm really closely connected to it um and uh, i love it absolutely love it but i also have this wonderful history back when i was at university studying environmental science I took this um, university paper that involved field trips and I went as a, you know, highly impressionable, impressionable 19 or 20 year old up to the headwaters of the Whanganui River and saw the diversion into the Tongariro power scheme. And it's never left me, that hugely powerful imagery of the river going from a beautiful mountain stream into a trickle after a heavy metal gate um so for a long time i've had connection to the river being mistreated if you like right um so that's um that's in my history so having the huge honor of representing the regional council on this group has been amazing um and it's you know, it's really fascinating. And I've been, I've joined a couple of, thanks to COVID, a couple of international conferences, particularly where people of the river have connected with um, Indigenous people in North America to talk about um, commonalities and how you view the world. Um, I've been really fortunate to form friendships with people who are really deeply connected to the river and have got to um, have some of their insights, including through my time when I was working for the Iwi. And there are increasingly conversations, um, and not just internationally about, you know, the first river with legal personhood, but local people. And I spoke to a group, I don't know, last year um, called Friends of the Whanganui River, which has been a long-standing sort of um, older retired person in general sort of service group connected to the river. And they're fascinated by it. While not, um, not deeply connected yet, uh, there are lots of efforts afoot to help people create and discover what it means for the river yeah. to, to be its own identity, what the values are, the four key values that fall out of it that make a ton of sense. And there's this really incredible one that, that people need to just be really open to, that the river is there for everyone and it's, everyone who wants a relationship with the river gets to have a connection with the river. So it's, um, it's 
it's incredible. There's tons of really good videos. I've shared a few of them on my um, Horizons Facebook page if people want an easy way to get to them. But um, you can probably find them on Google really easily. There's some beautiful video stories. And, of course, you can actually um, go down the river by canoe. It's one of um, Doc's um, great journeys. I'm saying the wrong thing, but whatever they're called, those journeys. So, yeah, getting an experience of the river and looking at some of those videos, I really highly recommend. Yeah, no, that's great. It's, a, it's just fascinating to watch develop because people aren't really aware that this is a world first, you know, like this isn't yeah. just sort of a, a nice quirky little thing that we're following in the footsteps of things that have been done elsewhere. Because um, there are examples in other countries of similar things, but nothing that's quite the same. Um, so I'm certainly watching it. I'm writing a paper right now with two amazing people at the University of Canterbury um, who are specialists in um, the law of nature, essentially. Oh, cool. um, and, and so we're looking at the, this question about what does it mean if you have a legal entity that is set up, it exists at law. And then what does it mean if that entity, for example, appoints directors to a board of a company, you know, and, and then the company is coming to make a decision and the board is saying, well, we're going to decide to do ABC. And then that director says, well, I don't think we should do that because the 500 year perspective of the river is, yeah. you know, but then it gets really interesting because, I mean, maybe it's boring for people, but it's interesting for me um, is you get you know, section um, 131 directors need to act in the best interest of the company. Yeah, so yeah. So how do you reconcile acting in the best interest of the company with acting in the best interest of the shareholder who maybe doesn't agree with something that might pollute the river or, yeah, it's just fascinating area. So we're watching it, it develop. It ties completely back into um, the growth of social enterprise and issues around um models forcing to prioritize profit over well-being so it it ties in full circle it's it's a really important challenge that we have to get our heads around um and you know one last sort of um pedestal for me to jump on is the gdp you know it just drives me crazy that we still quote gdp all over the place what is the purpose of GDP, it's just a measure of economic activity. It doesn't tell us whether that was good economic activity or bad. And I think that the, um, the, the faster we can accelerate this thinking about um, what is more important, a return to a shareholder or well-being for the systems that we're all dependent on, including the shareholder. So um, I'm all for us accelerating these changes. Yeah, well, if there's Venn diagrams, it definitely fits within that thought, <laughs> doesn't it, it? It does. Well, Nicole, I have a feeling that we could talk for a couple more hours. I know. <laughs> <laughs> each of your little career divergence was really interesting. And, you know, each one of them we could have spent 20 minutes on, I'm sure. But yeah. I appreciate you condensing it down. <laughs> and I think we've been able to get to the essence. And the reason I do these podcasts, like this will be about episode 300 or so. And the thing that I love about it is that when you hear somebody's life story and then you can place them in the context of, you know, growing up in Takaka, 
seeing nature, hearing about your parents' influence, you know, what is it that's shaped you into who you are today? And you can definitely see the arc of a life. So thank you for sharing with us, because I think that's, it's actually really, um, even for people who know you today, for them to go back and know, okay, this is where she's from. This is sort of what's led to this drive and this focus and this energy of why she does what she does today. I think it's really important to reflect and, and tell those stories. So thank you so much for your time. And what we can do is in the show notes, we can put links to anything you want. So we've touched uh, awesome. on lots of topics. You send me the links and people listening. If you look in the show notes, you'll be able to see cookable places if you want to further explore anything. Um, but yeah, just to finish off to say thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a huge honor. And um, I'm always really excited to um, profile these values that I've been fortunate enough to work for, which, you know, it does bring together some things that you and I have in common too. So um, thank you. And thank you for all your work and supporting these discussions and thoughtfulness around how we can do better. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Nicola. I really enjoyed some of her reflections on her own life and what's led her to do what she does today. And I encourage you to check out the Thrive Expo, which is coming up pretty soon. Have a look in the show notes for the links to that. And if you enjoy this content, then would you be willing to share it with one other person? Until next time.